The first chapter of the Bible says God created the world and everything in it in six days. But couldn't an all-powerful God have just created everything in one day or even one minute? Today on In Story, find out why creating the world in six days in Genesis chapter 1 had nothing to do with God's power and everything to do with His purpose. And along the way, you might discover something that Peter Parker, Jesus, and you and I all have in common. So let's get started, shall we? Hey everyone, welcome to In Storied. I'm Corey Smith. And last week we began a conversation about origin stories that started off by talking about superheroes. So today, let's begin by looking at one hero in particular, Spider-Man. Everyone knows Spider-Man. Spider-Man is Peter Parker, and prior to that fateful day with the radioactive spider, Peter is just your average high school kid. And what I love about his story is that when he first comes into his powers, he he doesn't all of a sudden become mature and noble and responsible. No, he does what most kids would do who wake up one day and find they have superpowers. He goes and has fun with it. So there's a lot of honesty there with the direction that story goes, and I think that's awesome. But one day he has an opportunity to use those powers to stop a crime in progress. But he chooses to let the bad guy get away. And as a direct consequence of that decision, that same bad guy later shows up at his house and ends up killing his Uncle Ben. And in the wake of that tragedy, Peter remembers something Uncle Ben once said to him. With great power comes great responsibility. It's a statement that becomes Peter's mantra and really comes to define his character as much, if not more, than the powers themselves. It shapes his purpose and his identity. Well, that's Spider-Man, but what about you and me? Do we have great power and great responsibility? And if so, what is the power, what is the responsibility, and where do they come from? Do we have a story that offers any insight into that? Now, we briefly reviewed three origin stories for humanity last week. Sumerian, Babylonian, and then the Hebrew with Genesis 1 and 2. We talked about how these stories are not primarily concerned with material origins of human beings. Although they do each describe that in different ways, these stories are not looking to satisfy our scientific and historical curiosity. They are first and foremost trying to explain the who and why of humans, more so than the how. The description of how the humans are created is there chiefly to ground the ideas of who they are and what purpose they might serve. So it's about meaning. It's about purpose. We'll get more into this as it relates to Genesis chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. So this week our focus is Genesis chapter 1. But before we get there, I wanted to address what I think is a very reasonable question, if you already happen to be a Jesus follower, and that's this. If the point of all of this is to find a story to latch on to that tells us who we are and how we should be, why not just cut to the chase and start with Jesus? Can we not just get right into the Gospels and go from there? 
And the simple answer to that is, yes, we could. Hard to find fault with that approach. But when I read about Jesus in the Gospels and how he teaches and what he's drawing on, you can't help but notice Jesus refers to the Old Testament a lot. He was a Jew, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And he saw his mission as continuing that program, not taking off in a whole new direction. John's gospel even begins in the same way Genesis does, albeit with uh, with a twist. Jesus makes Old Testament references and direct quotes when he's teaching his disciples and when he's answering the challenges of his opponents. And of course he does, because Jesus himself was a Torah-abiding Jew. So let's talk about Torah for a minute. What is Torah? Torah is a Hebrew word that usually gets translated as law. But if we try to understand it as law in the same way we usually mean law today, we end up with something too narrow. To us, law is the agreed-upon set of boundaries by which we as a civil society govern ourselves. And we have lots and lots of laws covering anything from traffic violations to capital crimes and everything in between. They are the do's and don'ts of a society. And Israel, of course, had law in that same kind of way, the Ten Commandments being a good basic example. But law, or Torah, was also more than that for them. It was also what they often referred to as the first five books of the Bible. And at other times, it could be more broadly understood as the entire Old Testament itself. Now, this is interesting because Genesis, then, is Torah, just as surely as, say, Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy has a ton of laws in the do's and don'ts sense of the word. But Genesis doesn't lay out a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's almost entirely narrative. It's story. But it's Torah just as surely as the rest of it. Because Torah for Israel is ultimately a way of life. And you need more than do's and don'ts to get that. This is actually pretty intuitive. Let's think of it from a parenting standpoint. Do we need rules or boundaries for our kids? We certainly do. They need boundaries just like we do. They need do's and don'ts so they can be safe for one thing, but also to help point them in the direction of learning how to be the kind of person we hope they will become. But can the do's and don'ts alone get the job done? No, of course not. No one ever raised their kids well simply by handing them a list of rules. No, most of the work in training our kids is simply done in doing life together. And for better or worse, you and I are imprinting a paradigm on them, not just of right and wrong actions, but of how life should be. It's giving them a way of life. And you're never not teaching them because you're never not doing life. You are always showing them your Torah. For Israel, Torah was how you were when you rose in the morning and when you lie down in the evening and everything you did and didn't do throughout the day. It is the story of one's life measured against the story of how God created us to be. So then we need to know that story. And it is to that story that we now turn our attention. 
All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1. We are going to try and break down the most important concepts that the writer wants us to come away with in this first chapter of the Bible because it really sets the pace for the rest of the story. So Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So first thing to note here, and this is interesting, is, is that we, we have this, this probably preconceived notion that what we're looking at in Genesis at the very beginning is, is the moment in which once there was nothing physically, materially, God was there, but God is spirit, there was nothing there, and then there was something there. But interestingly, nothing is not the starting point. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, it doesn't say there was no earth. It says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So this is the starting point. The Spirit of God is hovering over this, this dark abyss, poised to create, but has not yet created. Because what creation is on the ancient reckoning and what God is fixing to do here is, is that he's fixing to take care of this twofold problem that he mentions in verse 2. The problem is this. The earth was without form. It's formless. It has no structure. It's just endless dark water. And it's also void, which means there's nothing there. In other words, it is not inhabited. So over the course of the, these six days of creation... You're going to see God take care of this problem of formlessness on days one through three. And then on days four through six, he takes care of the problem of void. And here's how he does it. On day one, he says, let there be light. And it's important to know that whenever he does this, whenever he brings light upon this unformed creation, this unformed world, darkness is not completely vanquished. So what he does is, is he, he says, let there be light. But what it's doing is it's providing form. It's providing structure. Darkness does not go away completely. It is relegated to a particular time. There's day and then there's night. And so this gives the form in which now the rest of the days of creation can say, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So that's day one. Day two, and this one's kind of hard to conceptualize, and we're not going to get into the weeds on this one today, but what God does on day two is he essentially creates the sky. So by the, by the end of day two, he has separated once again. It's a kind of creation by division. It's a structuring. So what he's doing now is, is he's separating what it says is waters below from waters above. And so the sky's there now. So now the picture you've got here is, is you've got the ocean as far as you can see to the horizon line. But now you actually have a horizon line. Now you've got a sky there in place. And then on the third day, what he does is he takes those waters below and he separates those out so that we can have dry land. Now, let's pause here to note by way of comparison to something that we talked about briefly last week. Do you remember the Babylonian creation story? And do you remember how it was Marduk, the champion of the gods, who slew Tiamat, who was also a, a god of sorts, but she's represented by the seas, the seawater. And so her slain body, which are the waters, 
Marduk uses in order to create the world, as it were. So there's there's some similarity here, actually, between that and the Genesis story. But except on the Jewish reckoning, what's happening is is God did not slay some rival god. God just just took this oceanic abyss, and and he did with it according to his will. It was not there was no conflict there. It is completely subject to him, and he shapes it and forms it as he as he desires. There's no fight here. <laughs> And then so that's days one through three. If you were to take then and compare in parallel the first three days and you set them right alongside the second three days, days four through six, it looks like this. Days one through three took care of the problem of formlessness. Now we have form. So how we take care of the void, God is going to inhabit or he is going to populate each of those spheres that he has created so day one, remember, was the day and the night. And so then on day four, what does he do? Well, he populates the, the morning sky, the day sky with the sun. And for the evening, there's the moon and the stars. So then you look at day five, it corresponds to day two. You know, he had separated the waters below from the waters above so that there was sky and then there was water. So he puts birds in the air and then he puts fish in the sea. He fills that void. Those areas, those regions are now inhabited. And then finally, last but certainly not least, day six corresponds with day three and the dry land that God created space for. He now populates with land animals and humans. And this is where we get to where we're going here because when we see God has created these humans, what we're gonna see next is, is the purpose for why they are made. And if you look in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, God said, Let us make humans in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and everything that creeps on the ground. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over all of the things that, that live in this, in this good creation. So, three verses here. I understand that part of that sounds redundant with the dominion part, but, but look at the way this is situated here. Whenever you see redundancy in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it's usually the author trying to convey some kind of emphasis. So you've got mention of dominion in verse 26, and then dominion again mentioned in verse 28. And so then sandwiched in between those two verses is this little poetic uh, phrase, God created man in his own image, and the image of God who created them, male and female who created them. He's talking about us as humans being made in the image of, of God. And if you spend any time in church, you're familiar with that language. We as humans are made in the image of God. But what does that mean exactly? So typically when we think of image or imaging, we're thinking of, of, of something uh, the way it looks physically. But, but God is spirit. So we as humans, physical beings, created beings, we can't look like God in that sense. If God is spirit, 
and and we're physical beings we can't we can't look like him but but there's another way in which we are patterned after him in which we are his image and there's been a lot of energy expended in uh in philosophical theological thinking what does it mean to be made in the image of god and, and we come up with things like, okay, well, it has to do with the fact that we are reasoning creatures. We're able to do something that that the, the lesser creatures are not able to do. We're able to reason and think and do in those kinds of ways. Also, particularly that we are moral creatures. We have a moral element to us that the other animals simply don't have. So those are ways in which we're made in the image of God. And those aren't bad ideas. And there's a lot to those. But I think that the way this is laid out here in these few verses is instructive for us because if it says dominion on either side of this image thing, then I think dominion has something to do with what it means to be made in the image of God. So what does it mean for us to have dominion then? Well, dominion's kind of an old word. It's kind of a uh, you don't see dominion used much. I certainly don't use it much in, in day-to-day speech. But think of it as, as spheres of responsibility. God is giving the humans a responsibility. And so they're to work and to tend the garden, and they're to take care of all of the, all of the resident creatures there within. They're in charge of them. This is, this is their area that he's given them to rule. And so they are ruling alongside God. God is calling them up into this mission with him. And what this is going to entail is is what Eden looks like here, this Garden of Eden, this particular picture that that is the beginning of creation. God is intending for them to carry out this project with him the rest of the way. And so it's interesting then that even though creation has begun here in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis is is intending this to be something that continues on. So God is wanting them to spread out over all the world and do this. So he's calling them to, to come to work with him, basically. And so compare this to whenever we were looking at the Sumerian story last week. If you'll remember there, the gods created humans because there was toilsome labor that the gods were doing that they didn't want to do anymore. So they created humans to do it. It's funny, there is a similarity here that God has created us humans that we might work. But the work that he has us doing is not a work that he's setting down because he doesn't want to do it anymore because it's too much or too too bothersome. It's something that he's wanting us to do with him. And it's interesting that the two things that are mentioned here in these three verses that humanity is to do have dominion or spears of responsibility is one of them. To be fruitful and multiply is the other. And I see here pretty strong correlation between what it is the humans are intended to do and what God does that we see in Genesis 1 verse 2, which is when the earth doesn't have form, and it's void, he takes care of those two things. He provides structure, and then he fills. That's what God's wanting humans to do. He's wanting them to have dominion, authority, to provide structure, and then he's wanting the humans to fill the earth. He's wanting to take care of the, wanting them to take care of the void problem. And I think this is super instructive for us. So this is an instance of, of the Bible telling us who God is, but also who we are. And we being in the image of God are intended to pattern our lives after him as a creative being. 
God creates, he intends for us to create. And you may think, well, I'm, I'm not a creative person myself, you know. Don't think of this in terms of right-brained kinds of creativity versus left-brained kinds of creativity. We all have spheres of influence, spheres of authority that we're placed in that we're expected to, to do something with. And that's, it doesn't matter if we're the CEO of a major company. It doesn't matter if we are a child in a classroom or in a home. It's like we all have responsibilities that we are given and we want to do well with those. And then when it comes to, to filling the voids that we see in our lives, and yes, this does seem to be speaking expressly to, to having children, to, to reproductive kinds of things when God's telling them to, to fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply, that there are other ways to be fruitful. There are other ways to, to fill the voids of life, and that is, is it's, it's filling, filling life with, with the love and care of Jesus whenever, whenever we see those opportunities placed in front of us by God. I exist for God's purposes, and God's calling me into His purposes, and it's a noble calling because He's wanting me to do the very kinds of things that He does Himself. He's calling me to be like that. I'm made in His image, and that's what this looks like. So as we close here for the week, I think we want to circle back around to a concept I touched on briefly, and that is, is when we look at the way that these different origin stories play out. Because what they are is they are vessels of meaning for us. And, and I see tremendous meaning for us as humans in Genesis chapter 1. The other origin stories for humanity, the Sumerian story, the Babylonian story, the others, none of them really carried the day. None of them have really survived up to this point as being serious contenders for what we would look at whenever we're trying to, to pattern ourselves off something, to try and find meaning and purpose for our lives. So the, the, the Judeo-Christian story has hung around. That's still here. There, there is another prevailing narrative that gets talked about from, from time to time, or at least it gets implied sometimes, and that is this. It, it is that there is not actually a God who created us or anything. Rather, we are the happy accidents of the confluence of beneficial mutations in nature and natural selection. And so we have, we have kind of arisen to, to be, to exist despite the odds. And so that's, that's the other narrative out there that is, that is an option for us. What that narrative seems to be lacking to me is, is any kind of purpose for my life that is truly transcendent. And what I mean by that is, is rather than there being a, a creator God who has, has given me purpose, has given me meaning by virtue of his intent in making me, then I am free to determine all of those things for myself. I, I, I determine what it is for my life to have meaning. I determine my purpose. Now, for a lot of folks, that's, that's an attractive notion because it sounds like there's a lot of freedom in that. And I, I'm free to be as, as noble as, as I choose to be. And I think whenever we, we look at our world, though, with, with an honest look, I think what we see is, is that humans, by and large, we, we tend not to, to treat each other nobly on the whole. And when we look at the news feeds that uh, we take in from day to day, we can see that. We, we have this attitude that, that we are 
better animals, but animals is still what we act like much of the time. That is, is depending on where we're at on the food chain, we, we exist either to, to consume when we can or to be consumed by other animals who are, who are bigger, stronger, higher on the food chain. Now, humans don't do that in a literal kind of sense, obviously, but what they do is, is they consume one another in different kinds of ways. If I'm able to get a leg up on you, if I'm able to find myself in a position of power, I might consume you in other ways that uh, sort of puts you beneath me or out of my way at the very least for, for my own benefit. Or I may consume someone for my own sexual self-gratification. These are the kinds of things that humans do to one another day in and day out. And unless we say that we were created with transcendent meaning and purpose, we, we really lack the tools in our toolbox to condemn such behavior, objectively speaking. Because we can urge other folks to, to live in a way that is, that is for the common good, the greater good, but this is all just kind of pie-in-the-sky sort of thinking unless we can ground it in something greater than ourselves. Because if you and I are on equal footing in terms of being able to determine our own purpose in meeting, who's, who are you to say that, that your way is better than mine? If I can get mine and be able to get on in life and do well, why should I care about this person or this community or this group of people? Why should that matter to me when I can take care of mine and myself just fine? And so these are the kinds of questions that I'm completely powerless against unless I can say that I have been created by a loving God who loves me and you both, and He wants to see His purposes fulfilled in this world that He created. And He wants it to be a good world. He wants us to, to act responsibly in the responsibilities that He's given us. And He wants us to fill the voids in, that we come across in life. And He's empowered us to do so. We may not have superhuman powers like Spider-Man, but, but with great power comes responsibility, and we all have much more power than, than we might think that we do when it comes to, to being able to serve God and live out His purposes in this good world that He has created. And that is our foundation. That is our framework that we get from Genesis chapter 1. So for next week, we're going to take a look and get into Genesis chapter 2. There's a concept early on, Sabbath rest that we want to look at and see how that too is formative, us, formative for us as humans, and we're going to see how that plays out next week. Hope you have a blessed week. Thanks for listening to Story. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. And hit the subscribe button to receive new episodes each week. Remember to check the show notes for links to helpful resources. See you soon for another episode of Enstoried.